For June 11th, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 519, The Frank Sinatra Cinematic Universe. It's overthinking it, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, we're like a, uh, like a, a heist film band of jewel thieves, you know? It's like, and we, we, we come together to steal an hour of your precious time. <laughs> <laughs> every every week and judging by the fact that we're we're uh well into the 500s at this point we seem to be doing a very good job uh i uh you know i'm i guess the the host of this little merry band of of pranksters and i am joined by my uh oh sorry my name is matt rather and i'm joined by my very good friends peter fenzel hey matt and mark lee Hello, Matthew. They each have, you know, they each have a different, uh, different specialty, you know, uh, explosives, contortionism, uh, the hacking, jewelry, manufacture, and so on. And, and so uh, we steal an hour of your time to overthink Ocean's 8, the number one movie in America, open to more than $40 million at the box office. I guess you could call it counter-programming. Um, in that it is not exactly a rebuke. If it's a rebuke, it's the softest of rebukes, but it is a sort of market alternative, right, to uh, uh, both the superhero or uh, franchise, you know, larger than life kind of franchise personality movies that we have uh, by personality, I guess I mean solo uh, that we have coming out this this summer and also to, um, you know, male dominated franchises in general being a reboot, preboot, post boot. Uh, but but whatever, whatever kind of boot, those boots are made for walking. And uh, that's just what they do in in Ocean's 8. So, um Let's let's dive in. We'll we'll spoil the movie. Uh, there's not much to spoil, really. They steal something, um, and are successful at it with <laughs> surprising twists along the way. Also, there's a cameo from George Clooney. No, there isn't. Uh, no, there there is uh, there is a presence that is missing from this film, but it is not George Clooney. But uh, I I have a more basic question because I I watched this film. Um, and I am perplexed by something. Uh, and I, I guess each of you, I'm, I'm curious to hear your answer to this. Who is the antagonist in Ocean's 8? Like, who is the bad guy? What is the force that opposes our, our heroes, our heroines, our band of, of thieves in their effort to pull off this jewel heist at the Met Gala? Uh, sorry, it's it's rude to answer to ask a vague question and not uh, you know and not um, actually identify some someone. So, uh, Pete, why don't you why don't yeah. you start us off? Who do, do you have? An I, I, idea? I, I wasn't going to jump in right away because my answer is really weird, and I wanted to give Mark a chance to give a more conventional answer before I go into my weird answer because I love this movie, but it's a pretty weird movie in certain ways. So, Mark, do you have a conventional answer? This question uh, the conventional answer is the ex-boyfriend right yeah claude um it, it doesn't really quite work though because they aren't really quite working against him he is not trying to stop them because right. he doesn't know what he's trying to stop um 
if you wanted to expand from that, I don't know, the patriarchy? Well, there you go, uh, right? Yeah, well, is there that, you go. But that, I feel like to a certain extent that is that's a kind of conventional answer. Please – Please, Pete, let your answer be Anna Wintour, editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine. No. My answer is the gods, is my answer. The gods of the earth. Okay. So, so <laughs> you, this, is a, this is a man versus nature uh, story. This is a Prometheus story about stealing the fires of heaven, stealing the fire of the gods and bringing it to human beings who have been denied it by kind of supernatural edict uh, that is also the kind of edict that that brings about the creation of the world, right? Is that like the gods made the world and the gods made humans and the gods, it's funny because I'm changing it because the gods made man is the way the story goes the first time around, right? Gods and made that, George Clooney. Exactly, the gods made George Clooney and then George Clooney made Syriana and everything else is history. No, uh, <laughs> the gods the gods made man and the gods denied man the fi- their fire, which was both their sort of ability to cook food, their ability. It stands in for all sorts of ideas about technology and inspiration. It's what it's an interesting idea because it takes the cinematic notion of the MacGuffin and it underpins it with a mythological and, and sort of pseudo historical mythological uh, normativity. The, the idea that that the, this is a story about getting a MacGuffin, right? But in cinematic theory, you know, or like what you would talk about, even just sort of cinematic discussion, a MacGuffin, it can represent things, you know, the stuff that dreams are made of. But it tends to be a little bit soft on what it really stands for. It tends to be the object of desire for people. And I felt like and like the Ark of the Covenant in Indiana Jones, it's sort of important that it's a Jewish relic because there are Nazis going after it and they should have it. But other than that, it's not like particularly important to Indiana, to the Raiders of the Lost Ark, that the Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant. Like there's there's issues of how it interacts with history somewhat. But in a, in a greater sense, it's an object of desire. And I feel like the necklace, the Toussaint, and more on that in a second, right, in Oceans 8, is an object of desire that is that is more defined by the symbolism attached to it than by the fact that people want it. And, and I think in that sense, it kind of uh, betrays some of the conventional wisdom around MacGuffins present in movies and instead raises a whole lot of questions about, like, why people are doing things rather than necessarily, like, clarifying and crystallizing, pun intended, uh, what people are trying to do. Uh, I mean, it does both, right? It it does provide a sort of center of gravity around which the world operates. But like, so the villain in this movie is whatever sort of force took those gems, those gems that must at the end be rightfully distributed among the women so that the women can can follow their dreams and their hopes and achieve like freedom and a sense of self-expression and a sense of self-responsibility and and a sense of kind of actualization that they've been denied, right? It's it's whatever kind of combination of forces has taken those gems, and you could say patriarchy, but I don't think that that I think that's like a little reductive. Um, it also sort of speaks of it too abstractly, and it chains them together into this necklace, into this object, and then it it buries it in the ground, right? It buries it fifty feet below the surface of the earth, and puts on top of it a. An age old stalwart institution guarded by powers, both religious and secular, that keeps it locked away for generations so that no one can wear it. And uh, and that that this is a story about getting that those gemstones and everything that they represent out from this vault and distribute it out to the people who need them and who deserve them. 
Uh, and and that in that there's a lot of discussion about who that is and why. And there's a lot of montage that's used to suggest different sorts of ideas about what culture is doing when it buries the gems beneath the earth and and guards them with Cartier. Right. And puts the name Cartier on them. Uh, and and in that sense, this is a battle against the uh, the collection of those kinds of factors. And I think that the ex-boyfriend is one of the factors. And yes, in a loose sense, he's patriarchal, but it's not just it's not just men. There's also complicit women and, and other sorts of stuff that's going on. Uh, like, and, like Anna Wintour, editor in chief of Vogue magazine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go for it, Matt. Do you think the antagonist of this movie is Anna Wintour, editor in chief of Vogue magazine? No, I mean, I'm taking I'm actually taken with your explanation. I think a couple things. I And I think the, these are things that like represent old Europe. A lot of a lot of these yeah. things like it's important yeah. that the boyfriend is European. Um, yeah. It's important that a lot of the art in the Met uh, is European, though you know, pointedly not all of it. And it happens in the 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 gala happens in the Temple of Dendur, doesn't it? Like the yeah, yep. um, and that's but, oh, but the but the gala theme is European royalty, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But, well, specifically, and we can get more into this. The gala theme is the scepter and the orb. <laughs> right. And, and I guess the theme Oh, the gala theme is European royalty. The exhibition is scepter in the arm. So we can put that aside. But you're right. You're right. The gala theme is European royalty. Sorry, Matt. Continue. Yeah. And it's not. Well, and it's funny. It's not. I feel like there are a lot of provocative things that aren't necessarily cashed out that there that there isn't a totally a coherent, you know, theory of the uh, theory of the crime to, to <laughs> use a like prosecutorial term, I guess. Um, so so to a certain extent, I mean, it's like the the version of prometheus stealing fire uh that is relevant here is a certain kind of narrative of the enlightenment right Mm -hmm. and a certain kind of narrative of uh self-rule self-government by consent of the governed rather than um you know, rather than the the uh, divine right of kings and kind of hereditary aristocracy and royalty. Yeah. So the right, but it's not that's but, not, but not to go. But to, before we step past that, as noted by the important nationalistic and counter monarchical painting, Washington crossing the Delaware, which right. is heavily featured. Right. So I just wanted to note that like this, that women putting themselves in the position of George Washington are making in this sort of quote unquote Banksy <laughs> or Bansky, whatever. Banksy. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. But that's, that's a complicated moment, right? Yeah. Because so what, what happens is that in order to sort of create a distraction at, at a particular time, um, so that I think so that Sarah Paulson can do something with security cameras or something when they're casing the joint, more or yeah. less, right? Um, yeah. It's in order to call for a review of the security system. Oh, I see. So that they can access the meetings and and infiltrate the security. Got it. Okay, so right. there, yeah. there's a couple of several there there's several layers deep then because it's Sarah Paulson who creates the uh, playing a tourist rube uh, distracts the security guards so that I think presumably uh, Sandra Bullock can put the um, can put the painting up on the wall. So so it's a right. It is an all female Washington crossing the Delaware. I I sort of looked. I saw it and immediately thought like, oh, look for the look look for the stars of this film in the faces of the the people crossing the Delaware. Right, like look for the band of heist the, the band of heisters. What's the uh, thieves robbers? Um, and it's not it's not quite that. It's it's a little more generic. And I think it's it's 
explained later as being the founding mothers of the United States, uh, uh, Martha Washington, etc. I suppose L- Liberty Leading the People is in there. Yeah, the famous French Revolutionary painting. Yeah, and so that's like so that's that's what it is, and then it's attributed to a male underground artist. <laughs> Right, yep. like yep. Pres- presumed male underground artist. Well, fa- fair point. Yeah, you know? I, I've seen theories floated out there in the internet that Banksy is actually female. That's, uh, that, but there's there's no evidence really either for or against. Just presumed. Just I think just like cultural norms and presumptions. Um, yeah. So that's right. So that that's a that's a complicated moment. I mean, Banksy was was interviewed right in Exit Through the Gift Shop, maybe or in some some sort of documentary, and not shown, not de- not shown on on screen. Was sort of backlit and voice changed, I think. But I guess that could be uh, that could be could have been anyone. Yeah. Fair enough. Could have not even been the actual Banksy. That could have been uh, replaced by Martha Washington. Um, the the uh, yeah the the moment there is complicated with sort of questions of um, primacy, originality, authority, um, lineage. Right, uh, being being called into question, and the idea of like who are the authentic founders of the country, right? Who are the and then the fact that the the women who are actually responsible for the painting get obscured by this sort of presumed male uh, art world figure, right? Is uh, is interesting. I mean, I, I guess also there's a, so there's kind of a there's a. Um, democratic message there's also sort of a populist message uh with i there's sort of a populist message with um the the uh, hereditary aristocracy the the things being returned to the people being not you know being sort of not locked up uh which is odd because it's the the idea of the met gala isn't really interrogated right the the idea of the kind of american uh you know asymmetric wealth aristocracy um the consolidation of privilege by you know by uh the the one percent if you will is not you know is not really interrogated yeah um but but the the thing to me is like it's not it's not the scepter and the orb it's like jewels crown jewels right which seem to be the the uh focus of the both the exhibit and the heist at least at least as they're shown and there isn't there's not a lot of joy taken i mean honestly the the most fun thing is the uh the dress that the the headdress that bellatrix bellatrix lestrange wears in the (laughs) yeah that helena bonham carter wears in into into the gala right like it's so it's so weird it's so bizarre it seems fun it seems idiosyncratic you know and that the the idea of of clothes to express or to subvert like by the way this year's uh this year's Met Gala was all like Catholic cosplay, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, a lot of friar tucks out there. Yep. <laughs> um, th- right. That that like that these things are that these things are 
are venues for expression uh, or they're tools of oppression, and and they're both. But like they they were neither critiqued nor celebrated. They they were just kind of there. And and to me, this is like the 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 thing. I guess I'm the, I'm gonna be quiet after this because I'm saying everything I have to say about this film yeah. now. But the yeah. thing <laughs> the thing I I I have about this this. Uh, movie is that it's um there there was a there was a kind of joyless aspect to it whereas uh you know steven soderbergh the male presence who hovered over this film but but was uh notable mostly by his absence brought a a certain elegance a certain style rhythm call it poetry if you want to be pretentious but a um a sense of the of the delight right in um both the the impossibility of the heist in in his remake of Ocean's Eleven, which was a remake itself, by the way, um, and uh, and also in the kind of the milieu of Las Vegas, you know, right. or of the underworld card shark, uh, card you know pickpocket sort of uh, demi mond that he wanted to um, that, that that he was kind of drawing on for the sort of energy in in that film, and I just I you know I was just sort of missing that here. Well, it, it isn't. That's not what it's about at all. That's you, why you were missing it because that's not this movie. Yeah, but <laughs> like, not, not even but, a little but, bit. Yeah. But what is the equivalent? I mean, what is the equivalent right. thing? Like, is it the is it the the jewels? Like, are they you know are they fantastic? I mean, they weren't really fetishized in the way you would expect them to be in a in a in a film about them. It's almost like the the 3D printer that made the cubic zirconium versions were more. Um, uh, were uh, seemed more impressive than than the jewels themselves. Was right. it the expression of the fashion? Was it the uh, beautiful people there? You know, there were a couple of cameos, but no, no, nothing really lingered on or, or celebrated, except maybe uh, maybe Heidi Klum. Um, like it, it didn't have an equivalent. There wasn't a joy taken in any equivalent aspect of this film's world uh, that that I felt like I could connect to. Uh, well, I, I think that might—I think that last part might be important. But so, okay. So to back it up a little bit, one thing I like about this movie a lot is it does not take for granted some very basic assumptions that go into the original Ocean movies. And I would even say that this movie is a better reboot and interrogation of Ghostbusters than the Ghostbusters reboot was. If you're talking oh. about, I'll say that right here. So when Ooh. we talked about the Ghostbusters movie, we talked about ideas in the eighties, uh, of kind of slacker, the pre slacker men who were trying to kind of rebel a little bit against society and the expectations of a very sort of strict, uh, post-war society in order to kind of demonstrate their worth and their capability and feel validated and actualized in a world that didn't really afford men much freedom uh, prior to this, you know, because of the regimented militaristic, uh, you know, history of the mid-20th century. That you, you know, this was a generation that, that this is a post-Vietnam movie where nobody is going to war, right? And as such, the Ghostbusters can be goofy, they can be kind of capitalists, they can be kind of hustlers, and, and as such, uh, they can then demonstrate a, a kind of renewal and a freeing of the of the sort of status quo. Now, what this is sort of an imitation to, I think, is 
Frank Sinatra. This all centers around Frank Sinatra. Yep, for sure. <laughs> like, yeah, like this whole thing is like this is the Frank Sinatra cinematic universe that we're talking about. <laughs> Frank, Frank, this is all like Frank Sinatra is the sort of Spider-Man, Stan Lee kind of Ur character of all of these Oceans movies because the first Oceans movie is a Frank Sinatra movie, and of course it's not very good <laughs> necessarily, right? It's not like super great Frank Sinatra movie, but the idea is that at the time. There was a, a kind of you could think of it as a fire of the gods, and it's the sort of the ability to sing amazingly, the sort of excellence as an entertainer. The notion that being an excellent entertainer could usher you into a success in society that uh, would overcome your other sorts of social disadvantages. Frank Sinatra, you know, Italian, born dirt poor, right? Sammy Davis Jr., right? You know, like all, all sorts of the guys in the Rat Pack are generally not like guys coming from any sort of fancy schmancy background. Dean Martin, you know, racial stereotype Dean Martin dancing for his supper just alongside everybody else. And uh, but but because of their ability to seize on this energy to entertain, they were able to capture a certain amount of power. And in doing this, the way that then the sort of rebellious style with which they lived and the way they disregarded social norms and also sort of disregarded the idea of what an upstanding man was supposed to be like, while at the same time undeniably declaring that masculinity for everybody like that tension is the same sort of idea that follows through to movies like Ghostbusters and Ocean's Eleven and even stuff beyond that, even stuff like Iron Man, like Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man owes something to this kind of performance, uh, wherein everybody loves Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra can even be seen as kind of an American treasure while at the same time being like a borderline or actual mobster who's kind of also an alcoholic, right, who's also like from the wrong side of the tracks, who's also had tons of divorces, right, who's also kind of deeply troubled in a mental way Right. And he could do all these things because he seized this sort of powerful agency and glory for himself through his voice, which in this case is kind of a literal and metaphorical thing, but also his style and his panache. And, and so there's this act of redefining the the kind of boundaries of, I guess, what you might call the elite, the best of the best, the creme de la creme. You're the top. You're the cat's pajamas. Right. Like the idea that the cat's pajamas is the top is a new idea. Right? Like the, the idea that like, uh, you know, the bees, a bee's knee is a low thing. Right. Like but to make the bee's knee is a top thing is a different sort of thing. And, and the question then I think that emerges from this is if we want to recapture and, and, and reinvestigate what this is about, do we try to recreate Sinatra's coolness and the coolness of the Rat Pack in a new group of people. And we try to reimagine and recreate that kind of fire lightning in a bottle that they had, which I think is to a large extent what the Ocean's Eleven is doing. It's like bringing together a bunch of really cool dudes and having them do really cool stuff in Vegas, baby. Right. And, And the casino and all of the energy of the casino is all kind of like the legacy of what was built on the back of these, you know, crooners, entertainers and the culture that they fuel. And, uh, and, and, you know, through the 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. And uh, and what Ocean's 8 is doing is it's going back to basics and saying, OK, we're done with the idea that if you're an Italian who can sing really well you, and from the wrong side of the tracks, you're like society is not designed for you. Right. Like like Sinatra put his stamp on society and like it's there. Right. It, it, it is huge. And Danny Ocean is sort of the manifestation in the modern day of this idea. George Clooney, uh, 
I think I remember one person I, I heard somebody and I forget who it was. I wish I could credit them. Uh, I was talking about Brangelina, you know, Br- uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's divorce and said that Brad Pitt realized at some point during all of his humanitarian trips that he could have been spending all those years hanging out with George Clooney on Lake Como. Right. And I just sort of think that that's like that's such a Sinatra thing to say. But it's like, OK, who are the people now who are in the position that Sinatra was in in like the 30s and 40s where they have some sort of specialness that it has an undeniable power to it? But society and the sort of social organization of the of the best of the best, the creme de la creme, the cat's pajamas don't isn't in their image. And so what I would come around to say is that, Matt, I think the equivalent of the fun and coolness and the celebrated thing in Oceans 11 and 12 here is in supposed to be, at least, in the personality of the various female protagonists and their style and and how their style is cool and how what they're doing is awesome. It's it's in sort of Kate Blanchett's CBGB T-shirt and her like 20 rings and her hair in her face, and now she has her old Triumph motorcycle that she replaces with a new Triumph motorcycle. Like that's the cool thing. Those were those um, were definitely awesome motorcycles. I mean, you have one, right? You have a Triumph. I do not that not a not as cool a one as she <laughs> as she has. I mean, it it, it uh, what hits the, the the movie hits its point on the nose towards the end when uh, um when Daphne Kluger, um, uh, the Anne Hathaway character, comes in at the end, basically says, like, I want to join this gang of sassy ladies because I don't have any close female friends. <laughs> the Joey right? Bishop. That's right? yeah. what the movie's about. But just to rewind a little bit, Pete, like, what you're saying is, that, like, the analogy here is that, you know, uh, Jersey outsider crooner Frank Sinatra is to Ocean's Eleven and that sort of portrayal of panache as essentially, you know, women, <laughs> Are to like Ocean's Eight in this version of Panache, yeah. right? I they would, are they are the outsiders. They are the the ones who like who have the special power who who are like in this like I guess you could say in the Me Too era now like breaking through uh, in, in, into a new level of, uh, of of the mainstream. To to clarify what you're saying and also to touch back and move it back to another one of the topics that Matt talked about, I don't think Ocean's Eight is about women. I think Ocean's Eight is about awesome women. <laughs> it's about women who are awesome and don't get the chance to be awesome because nobody sees them. And that's that's like the big Downton, one of the big Downton Abbey moments in the movie, right, where it's like, oh, should we bring this guy on? It's like, I don't want any I don't want a him. It's like, why don't you want a him? Because people notice a him and they ignore a her and we want to be ignored. And so so you're talking you have Rihanna in this movie. Well, right, right? Yeah, you know? absolutely. Like one of the biggest cons pulled by this film, I think is like, uh, treating Rihanna as though she's not one of the most beautiful women in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel like, uh, that, that there is a, there is an authenticity to the idea among awesome women that they aren't treated as awesomely as they would like by, oh. by, yeah, yeah, sure. Abs- absolutely. What, yeah. Do, do you feel like there's an apotheosis when they're all in their ball gowns? Like, yeah, that, like, oh, totally. G- yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because that's yeah. because that is a to a certain extent, a kind of leveling, except for glorious, glorious Kate Blanchett in her <laughs> pants, in her like uh, jumpsuit style kind of um, motorcycle, like evil Knievel-esque motorcycle getup. That was oh, so, yeah. so, so cool. But everyone yeah. else is, is, you know, some version of conventional in that, uh, right, in in that final shot. And it's almost like, I don't know, I'd like the... Uh, 
I'd like something that's a little more a little more mold breaking. But I guess it's just yet another a yet another domain of excellence, right? Like, and, and that's the, that's the point that you're making. It's, it's kind of like how, how many things, uh, how many things do we have to do, right? Like how many things do we have to be better at, uh, in order to be treated like we're, uh, decent, you know, right. and that's or that, awesome or awesome. Yeah. I would even say awesome because it's not a populist movie. They don't give the money to the poor. <laughs> they, they keep it for themselves. No, but they, they repre- awesome I mean, trips. but they represent in, in things like this. It's like they represent uh, they represent a populist awesomeness. That's that's you know, they represent a class of people. Right. Like that. Uh, it's not it's not a literal. It's not a work of literal, uh, you know, I don't know, reportage. Right. Like it's uh it's a film. It's a, a work of dramatic storytelling. It's it's metaphorical, right? And and so yeah. right. The, the, the working the, the 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 women of color, the women from working class backgrounds, they get the money. But they're still the awesome they ones. They like negotiate a cut for global capitalism, right? <laughs> like like this is not a socialist movie. This is a movie where it's like, hey, guy from the big company that has all the money, how about we get a cut and you get a cut and everyone goes home happy, right? It's not like we're going to burn down Cartier. Cartier will be fine. They'll recover some of the loss. They're insured, right? It's, it's that the insurance company needs to be able to save face by recovering some of their losses and not just being like uh, being lost altogether. So, yeah, so uh, you can you can right lock up the boyfriend to to ameliorate that you know that need and here's what 10 percent of the of the jewels yeah. back or something like I, that. I would say to to the extent that the villain of the movie is patriarchy and I, the re- I guess the real reason i resist that is that's so much more specific than just patriarchy because there's a it's a coalition oh yeah and, 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 and i was saying that yeah. i was to be clear i was i was putting that there beginning just to be kind of flip <laughs> yeah but the coalition <laughs> is yeah. global business and specifically western european business which is dispassionate and doesn't care about good or bad and only cares about making money and a certain doesn't care about of, beauty either no like because no. they keep the, the their best jewels locked away no and the idea that they and there's that great shot when you look at cartier where there's the cartier awning and then there's the flag of the united kingdom and the flag of france and I think the flag of the United States, although it might have also been the flag of the European Union, I couldn't quite catch it, uh, where there's this notion that the governments of the world are in cooperation, uh, and particularly the governments of Western Europe in this sort of like uh, uh, that kind of model for running the world. It, who run the world? Viscounts, right? Who run the world? Like Marquises and Marquesses. Uh, is uh, More Marquises than Marquesses. Is there's like the business people who don't care about good or bad or right or wrong or 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 beauty or anything. They care about getting their cut and getting their money. Had this coalition with the nations, which care about the scepter and the orb, right? Which I guess we should we could go into. Yeah, it's probably uh, right? time. Okay, but, so but finish scepter, your yeah. but but cash out your thought. Finish. Yeah, your so they're in combination with the scepter and the orb, which is ideas of sovereignty and government and the state, right? And then and then my favorite little note of this is that the the necklace has two bodyguards, and the two bodyguards come from the Vatican and Israel, right? Which is so great. And the idea that yeah. the necklace, the precious thing, the glory that's been chained up by the combination of the governments and the and the businessmen of Western Europe and, and their sort of global reach is guarded by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, and I absolutely love that the ultimate failure of the Judeo-Christian tradition in this movie is that they're not willing to go into the ladies' bathroom. 
uh, which is just such an evocative symbol for the kind of awkwardness around these particular sorts of religions in their contemporary uh, their contemporary manifestations and their relative discomfort with things that happen between people's legs. And also, also <laughs> at a time, right? Also at a time when uh, hmm. when who gets to go into what bathroom is being kind of ferociously litigated yeah. in in the United States, right? Like it is yeah. a kind of uh, it is a potent. Um, it is a potent metaphorical place for pooping. Yeah, exactly. And there's a German. There's like a German voice that says, Nein, you got to go into the ladies' bathroom. Is there anything to read into the fact that Aquafina's character, right, the Asian female, uh, as she enters the bath or she comes out from, uh, in the bathroom there to, to steal the necklace, she's presented as kind of androgynous or at least genderless. Really? There, because she can't. Yeah, be there is. Going, she, I think so, because she can't be seen as going in and out of the bathroom, right? The only person who can be seen is the person who is very clearly identified as as who he is. I guess I I would read into it. I would say sure. The fact that she's dressed like in in sort of traditionally masculine clothes and goes into a feminine space and crawls under the doors and locks the doors is is loaded. It's 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 one of those things that I think it's like oh that's cool. Like I like that. I don't know exactly what it means, but I like it. One of so the best. In, yeah. By the way, one of the best shots visually in the yeah. in the film, like looking down at the stalls, go you know traveling horizontally through the. Uh, uh, through the like the row of stalls in the bathroom and and watching her kind of shimmy under them. Yeah, exactly. And this that's so evocative of, the, of this idea that the movie is kind of like digging something up from underneath history. Uh, and it's it's an archaeological movie. I guess it is sort of like Raiders. Right. Whereas whereas when James Corden goes goes deep into the into the place where the poo happens, uh, he does it with like a video camera. Right. He does it sort of virtually and at a remove. Whereas Aquafina is is you know scurrying and kind of like crab walking under the uh, under the stalls themselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the scepter and the orb. It, uh, which is yeah yeah go for it no I, I was just saying like if the, if the the I just thought when you t- talked about locking the jewels up below I thought where should they go and I thought it belongs in a museum <laughs> um, and I think actually Harrison Ford is sort of an interesting action star t- for talking about these things because he is he is a, a sort of an amalgam of the Frank Sinatra model, the kind of nonchalance and you know devil may care rat packiness of Han Solo, but also of something else right like there's always a point in a Harrison Ford movie or at least in in the ones that i'm I'm calling to mind now which can Conveniently enough, are the ones that that support my theory. There's always a point where he's driven to exertion, right? And that that like, and that the 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 cool doesn't the cool doesn't last. But this could probably be a whole podcast by by itself. So let's uh, let's stick a pin in in our boy Harrison Ford, um, yeah. and and just hope that pretty soon they. Uh, reboot Indiana Jones with a woman playing the Indian and not Shia LaBeouf playing the Indiana Jones character. And, uh, we have an opportunity to revisit this, uh, this discussion. Pete, tell us what, what even is a scepter and the orb? (laughs) Well, in the picture, it depicts, of course, Queen Elizabeth, the first, the Virgin queen holding one of the scepters of the crown jewels of, I guess the United, that wasn't the United Kingdom yet. Uh, right. It was, it was the kingdom of England. It was the empire. It was the, the empire. The British Empire, ah, right? And, and the orb is an object called the Globus Cruciger, 
Uh, and it is a it is a, a a sphere which represents the earth. And the sphere representing the earth has a cross on top of it. And so the symbolism is that Christ rules over the earth and that this is sort of taken as a given, right? We're taking it as a given that Christ rules over the earth, but then we are taking the orb and we are putting it in the hand of a person. So we've created, we've, we've articulated the idea of, of, a, of a sovereignty, uh, of a kind of like where is where does political where does power over the earth come from power over the earth comes from god and from christ but we are taking this m- mode of power and we are putting it in the hand of a person and in that way a person is going to have access to that divine dominion over the earth something that doesn't or shouldn't necessarily belong to any one person right because that's not sort of how the god you know the gods making the earth hide the fire of the gods and don't let people have it but some but a king right can seize it and hold it and hold that sort of golden orb the symbol and particularly of the english monarchy and demonstrate and sort of use that symbol to articulate a domination over really the whole world, which is very different from something like the crown of St. Stephen of Hungary, where it refers to a sovereignty over like a very specific place, right? Where it's like, this is over Hungary, right? And uh, this is, and whereas the Globius Cruciger is really about, is really about global domination, really dominos domination, you know, with a big D and uh, with a big D, which is the scepter, right? Which is the crown jewels, the United <laughs> Kingdom, the crown jewels of England have a variety of scepters. But the scepter is born out of several different symbols. It's a combination, a little bit of the fasces of the old Roman imperium, which is the sort of magisterial power over life and death, which the institution renders first upon elected officials and then later upon kind of inherited dominance, right? Like uh, emperors and the like. And it is also a Christian uh, shepherd's staff, which signifies the sort of leadership and rulership of, of a sort of unknowing populace by the person who is in the know and in authority, who is, you know, uh, subject to God, of course, because the shepherd is supposed to be lowly. The shepherd is supposed to be a peasant. And so the king by holding or the bishop by holding the shepherd's staff is not supposed to be claiming that they are elite. But, you know, a staff, a shepherd's staff that's covered in gold and jewels is not something that belongs to like the sort of lower classes. Right. So so there's this. And also on top of it being this notion of an idea of global domination that has been given and invested in specific people and that we are going to try to seize for ourselves. On top of that, you have the the shaft and the roundness, which is a gender binary, right? Of like of like the staff is the masculine and the roundness is the feminine. And we have we have literally cast in metal <laughs> and beaten it out of gold the the images, the phallus, and this sort of somewhat yonic kind of symbol. It's not really a yonic symbol, but it is a feminine symbol. The the orb. Uh, right. I don't know the uh, the sort of comparable sort of suggestion for it, but it does have a, a sort of feminine aspect to it. And the idea that like that this is the way of things, that the way of the man of man and woman is organized in this way under this idea of sovereignty. And I think it's making the claim that this notion of sovereignty, which comes down from ancient times through ancient medieval and modern ideas of mysticism, spirituality, religion, and then kind of uh, kind of modern religion, which I would characterize as kind of a different way, form of social organization, it, it, that this has carried through and is not the only 
uh, idea or paradigm for organizing modern either American or global society. This is a pretty American movie, so I'll even say American movie. Um, the American project is somewhat in antagonism to it, but somewhere along the line, this has kind of been carried through and kept in the basement of the elite, the the, the people who attend the Met Gala, gala, whatever, uh, have access to this magical idea, this sort of sacred notion of domination. And that they that they are that is bestowed upon them that they have it by right, uh, in much the same way that a king or queen might have it, and like a Kardashian has it, right? A, who you know who run the world, Kardashians. Uh, there's a lot of fun shots of Kardashian. Uh, there's like three or four fun shots of Kardashians in this movie. Walking around, Katie. Oh, uh, Katie Holmes, your favorite was in this movie, Matt. I hope oh, you noticed. Oh, the former future Mrs. Matthew Rather was in this. Uh, <laughs> was in this film. Yeah, love you, Joey Potter. So, so the idea is that. That okay. The, let's go back to the necklace. The necklace is called Toussaint. It, 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 there is a very kinetic, tactile sort of scene where we watch Mindy Kaling break the chains that hold together the gems. Toussaint Louverture is, of course, the leader of the Haitian Revolution of most note, which converted a slave population into a sovereign population, right? Which which broke, which through, of course, complex means involving many people, broke the chains on the Haitian people. And and so it's interesting, of course, that it's in the basement of a French institution, right? Which is sort of what you might think of as where Haiti was prior to the revolution, is in the basement of France, uh, is that these people were held in the lowest of the low. But the idea that the domination of the less, that the idea that, oh, 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 we're going to go free the slaves is the narrative, right? We're not stealing from the museum. We're stealing from somebody at the museum. That there's this diamond necklace that is unfairly being kept, right? And it is being done and is being held by this business interest that's, that we don't care about. And, and really, and what we're going to do is that you're very comfortable with is we're going to break those chains and we're going to free those diamonds. That's what we say we're doing. But what we're really doing is seizing the fire of the gods, grabbing the domination of the world and keeping it for ourselves because we are awesome and we deserve it, right? Uh, and, and that we want the Globius Crucium, right? The Globius, the, uh, the Glo- Globus Cruciger, right? We want it and we deserve it and we ought to have it. And, and yes, they're going to sell it and use the money to do things that they want to do, but the things that they do demonstrate a control over the earth, uh, which is sort of, I guess, part of the message of this movie it's it's all it feels almost inauthentic to talk about this movie in a paradigm of oppressor and the oppressed because there is an idea in this movie like in, in movies like Fast Five which is another ocean another movie in the Frank Sinatra cinematic universe right where they steal all the money from from the big evil criminal in Brazil and everybody like buys fancy cars and fulfills their dreams uh, right is um and is cool by being a rebel and kind of becomes an elite despite being from the wrong side of the tracks right there's like that there is there is enough world to go around that the world is an ample place that is full of things to enjoy and that it is not the kind of situation where there like scarcity in that sort of sense is not really a problem in this universe i would say the idea that there isn't enough world and that and that by making one person uh rich you have to make another person poor uh that as in like you don't have to do that you can make like you can add more kings, and there won't necessarily be a net cost yeah. because you know what yeah. I mean. Like, yeah. go for it. Can we just briefly talk about some of the ways in which the the gang becomes uh, kings right. after this? Right now, queens. not all of them. Yeah. You know, ascend, ascend. Yeah, queens. Yes, queens. Um, not all of them. You know, <laughs> not all of them do you know, seize power in this regard. But we most notably see Anne Hathaway 
directing a movie yeah right, where she also like breaks the fourth wall right whispers to the camera it's not that hard um we see uh aquafina's character constance say yo what's up i'm on the co-op board she <laughs> is now a property owner yep right nine ball opens up her own business mm-hmm. which she is the owner um there is at least one other instance of some of a, of a oh Sarah Paulson right yeah. she takes her uh, her hoarding habit from her suburban garage into like a proper warehouse where she is now like a businesswoman. Um, those are just at least a few examples. There's probably others I'm not remembering. Helena yeah. Bottom Carter they, gets her they, own storefront, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. very, very much that. So, um, so yeah, they they've uh, they, they've they've taken some of this power, right? And now yeah. they they wield it in the world. Yeah, it's a Star Wars story. Is what it is, <laughs> in the sense that it's a story about people who should be Jedi's and aren't becoming Jedi's, <laughs> right? Is that Star Wars isn't? We've talked about this with regards to the Last Jedi and the kind of transformation of Star Wars. You know, old Star Wars or traditional Star Wars is very aristocratic, and the Force seems to pick favorites, and a lot of the time it picks favorites among kind of people who already are advantaged. The Force is Calvinist in the sense that there are certain people who are predestined to be uh, super duper with the Force and they tend to succeed in other ways and be excellent in other ways, and that's how you identify them. Uh, they tend to be great pod racers. Uh, you know, they, tend to be, they tend to be really like marvelous robot fiddlers and such. So... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So excellence in robot fiddling is, like, uh, is, a, is really you know, a mark of, of a lot of, oh, I don't know, Jed- Jedis and, and leaders all all over um is there anything i mean is there anything to breaking down the breaking down the sort of different characters do you feel like they they represent uh something in in the way that i don't know it as a sort of allegory of the soul or allegory of the self i probably shouldn't ask this without having an having an answer <laughs> uh to it prepped prepped in my head but the idea of I don't know the idea of like what is what do you feel like Kate Blanchett represents a little bit she's she's the one who's who's a little obscure to me because um, she's sort of there as the the yeah. reasoned counterpart to Sandra Bullock who who seems impulsive in framing her ex and and doing a thing for revenge uh, you don't run a job in a job but then it turns out that the plan all along was to to run a job in the job so maybe this dichotomy breaks down and uh, you know and they're all they're they're all just um, um I don't know they're they're all just uh, uh, great character sketches without a lot of metaphorical heft. All all rat packs are full of sinners. Yeah. All rat packs have rats in them. And so if we were to break it down, I would say the way to define allegorically each of these women is to look at the prohibition in life that it, that they are straining against. What is the thing that they are not allowed to do that they really need to do by their nature? Right. Thou, thou, uh, thou shalt not water down the well vodka in yeah. the dance club. Yeah, it's, it's like Kate Blanchett is constrained by the needs of her business. 
and and she wants to be free, right? As in, she wants to. I guess what she's the punk rocker who doesn't want to be tied to the idea of like running a con- commercial bar. Well, because c- she wears the CBGB shirt, and CBGB of course had to close because prices for leases and, and business dynamics in New York City changed, so it wasn't a viable business anymore, uh, which is tragic, right? But this idea that like Kate Blanchett is, if you have a business or if you're being a punk rocker, you have to be commercially viable. And, and so and that's the prohibition she wants to break. She doesn't want to be commercially viable. She wants to get on her motorcycle and ride till there's no more road. Right. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, it says, if you are a creative person and in fashion or in design or in art, you have to be cool. You have to be the person that society thinks is cool and in and with it right now. And if you're not, then you're you're out on your tail. Right. Like that that the world says the world doesn't have room for uncool fashion designers is kind of the prohibition that Helena Bonham Carter dares to go against. It's like, well, I'm an uncool fashion designer and I'm in the world. What about me? Right. Um, You know, you have to be a housewife. You can't you can't be a housewife and also do other things, uh, I think, is the is the big one for uh, for um, what's the name of that actress? Sarah you said Paulson. Sarah Paulson. The Sarah Paulson. We were talking about her before the movie and talking about the other movies that she was in. And uh, I always get confused because of uh, Hank Paulson, the old Secretary <laughs> of the Treasury. And I'm like, they weren't related. I, I, they don't. I, I, yeah. I was thinking about Hank Paulson. Wig. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking. Well, I think it was supposed to be Elizabeth Banks. Uh, and I think oh. I think Sarah Paulson was was um, cast late in the game. But uh, she was. Um, she was the blonde. She was the Kristen Chenoweth character on Studio 60 and the Sunset Strip. Uh, she's a really good actress. And she's also in the kind of the Ryan Murphy uh, American Horror Story repertory company. She's done, I think, a lot of work in, in those. Um, so she does sort of cool and interesting. She is, she is awesome in, in her own right uh, as well. Yeah. I, th- I think it was like, I think it was actually motherhood, right? Was the, yeah. the, the thing that like motherhood has to sort of define you or or be the only thing in in your life the the kind of the totality of your role um if you're uh if you're a mother and i think the suburban trappings were there just to kind of highlight underline and and italicize the italicize the point cuz none of the other women were notably uh were notably mothers though one at least was notably had a sister right, right. um who who sort of showed up who showed up yeah. at the end. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so, so yeah, Sarah Paulson. And to, and, yeah, and to cash out the rest of it, Aquafina is hungry. Like she's literally and metaphorically hungry. She wants a giant sandwich <laughs> and she has sort of basic needs for food and shelter. And she wants a lot of it. And, and, and transportation, right. And transportation. Yeah. She needs a metro like, I need 20 bucks for a metro card. I skateboarded here all the way from Queens, which <laughs> and, is a and, very, very long way. Yeah, and she's not supposed to be hungry. It's like untoward or inappropriate for her to be a hungry hustler who's trying to get hers, right? For her to basically be the um, Tyrese character from Fast and the Furious. We hungry, right? From Too Fast, Too Furious. And then, and then uh, uh, the um, the uh, oh well, the Anne Hathaway character is like. You know, is what she has no friends. She she has to be the celebrity. Well, she's not in the gang at first, and you don't realize that she's constrained and that she's lonely until later. But oh, and Rihanna is that you can't be you can't be in technology and be a woman of color, right? You can't be a computer genius. You have to be Russian. You have to be a Russian man to be a computer genius. 
and you're not allowed to be a computer genius. You don't look like a computer genius. You don't act like a computer genius. You can't be a computer genius. You you are a mom. You can't be you can't be a manager if you're a mom. You can't manage adults and businesses and like inventory. You can you can't be an inventory manager if your inventory is children. Yeah, but it's it has all, to be only well, children. Right, yeah, sure. That's they're they're <laughs> the only they're the only items in your in your inventory. Um but that's like yeah, it's not she doesn't become like a distribution center manager. She's a fence, right? Like she's selling stolen goods. Uh yeah, that that's her, you know, her sort of her sort of thing. None of it is none of it is legitimate. Uh, like and the the idea of the husband who's so completely in the dark that his wife is kind of doing this uh, desperately to kind of stay sane uh, right under his nose, running the you know, running the the, 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 the trafficking and stolen goods in in her garage. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. And then the big one, just to cap it off, is that a woman can't be George Clooney. <laughs> and this, and this is a movie where it ends with a woman being George Clooney, right? Because because there's this and this and we'll move on for this in just a second. But there's the specter that hangs over the whole movie where the movie really teases it, where it's like, oh, George Clooney is gonna, totally going to show up. George Clooney is totally going to show up. Like, I, I, he's not how many, actually dead. Yeah, how many of you thought that George Clooney was working with Anne Hathaway and that like Anne Hathaway was going to rob them and George Clooney was going to be like on the team with Anne Hathaway pulling the heist because he didn't wasn't going to allow his sister to have the glory and the money. Well, and I he mean, was yeah, that, uh, to a certain extent, that would be. Uh, I don't know. To a certain extent, that would have been a more ideologically coherent film. It would have presented a more straightforward critique of patriarchy, right? Yeah. Like, and uh, credit. It would have generalized. Like it would have generalized patriarchy more to include Frank Sinatra, whereas this movie does not include Frank Sinatra in the patriarchy because Frank Sinatra is not a noble, right? He's not an aristocrat. He's not, you know, he's he's not like old European power. Right. It's like this is a movie that's allied somewhat with Frank Sinatra. It sort of runs parallel to Frank Sinatra. Um, And in fact, it's like in the end, it's like, you know, it's it's that Sandra Bullock can be Frank Sinatra. And that that final moment, the the martini. Oh, man. Did you like that moment, man? Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was really good. I sort of saw it coming. They telegraphed it with the olives in the mason jar. Um, like I, I, <laughs> I didn't almost, notice. Yeah. I almost wish we hadn't seen the olives in the in the mason jar until, like, because that's, like, the, that's the topper. Like, that's the, the cherry on top or the olive, the olive on top, I suppose. That, that, that was good. And that, like, um, I don't know. There, there is a nice sort of... An alternative, uh, like the, there's a kind of alternative mode of heroism of George Clooneying there, right? Like because George Clooneying can't can't really be tied down to a family, you know. George, the, like, uh, well, you know, now he is, and it's all it's all gone. And uh, I mean, now George Clooney is married and a father, and Trump is our president. So make of that what you will. But the <laughs> but uh, um, the idea that she can sort of that she can kind of lift one up to family, right? Like, uh, uh, hey, hey, Danny Ocean, you would have loved this job more than you till I join you. Uh, is a uh, is a kind of fundamentally more generous mode of rather than the the personality that kind of ex- insists on itself to the um you know to the exclusion of all others i'll point out a couple other good things in in the script there are details that do not strictly speaking relate to the plot and in the kind of the super corporate 
um, highly script edited, like really pulverize all the life and idiosyncrasy out of uh, big film scripts, tentpole film scripts, especially like whenever you learn a detail about a character in act one is going to come into play in act three. And the fact that Aquafina did not save the day by skateboarding, right? <laughs> The fact that Mindy Kaling's Tinder, like, I guess it was a character moment at the end, but that it didn't relate to the plot, like learning about learning about Tinder, Um, you know, that that uh, wait, what did you say her sin was? I didn't say her sin. I guess what her was sin her is sin that, is that a, a, a woman can't be a sexual agent, right? Like can't be can't kind of make decisions about her own relationships and reproduction, and that uh, uh, yeah, that's part sort of it. I would I, yeah, the connection to it. arranged marriage at the beginning. I think was right. the thing that, that, that was definitely yeah. there. And the, the way yeah. the way the way that pays is that she's on a date, and of course it's a date at the Eiffel Tower, but it's a date with a guy who she thought looked kind, uh, not a suitable match for her uh, by her mother's standards, but you know a, a, someone that she was interested in herself yeah that she can choose value for herself yeah. that's, it's, it's cool that she's sort of an appraiser too that she like and then the first scene we meet her in her appraising skills are being questioned and trivialized well yeah she's like, she's, yeah. she's being told she's she's sort of a truth teller right in that yeah. scene where it's like this is not as good a commodity as you think uh as you think it is as you're as you're insisting it is and she kind of sees the world um in in a clear way uh and uh, also cl- what what goes with clarity cut carrot and uh color right uh <laughs> as, as uh in a way that um a lot of other people don't because they're invested in they're invested in their blinders yeah. so you want to talk about the heist itself the actual jobby job I, I guess I mean we're we're uh, we're closing in on it. So let's uh, let's actually let's go back Steven Soderbergh style and show how it was done. Right. Well, I mean the the main thing that comes to mind for me is that this movie depended a lot on infiltrating organizations with specific people, and I I, I hesitate to try to compare it to the other oceans movie, other movies in the ocean verse, um, and whether it's more so or less. So, um, but that to me seem to be uh, at least two or three different times incredibly crucial for this, right? You must hire this nutritionist. You must get hired as the costume designer. There's probably another one as well, too. Um, That struck me as notable and perhaps not necessarily uh, what I assume from a heist movie. Did you guys take that away as well, or did you come away with something different? That it was interesting how many, like, it's interesting how many people actually actually worked for the quote unquote bad guys during the course of the movie. Yeah. Cause like usually oh, mostly, like, yes, and, yeah. and, uh, and Sarah Paulson's character, most notably getting a job at Vogue to yeah. help plan the event. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, she's it's taking down Anna Wintour from the inside <laughs> in, in a movie where all of the characters were men, it would be enough for them to just dress in the outfit. But Rihanna has to actually take the bucket and empty the trash, right? Like that's sort of the maybe that's a little bit of commentary being done here is that, you know, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker can just dress up like stormtroopers and walk around the Death Star. And that's fine. But if a woman were to do it, she would actually have to, like, complete several duty assignments and fill out her timesheet. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> By the way, like uh, if you ever want to get into this is a point made on Bird Notice several times, I think if you ever do want just unfettered access to wherever you want to go, put on a delivery outfit or like a janitor's outfit, right? You can just you can walk through any door. 
<laughs> or a ring of invisibility, whichever one you have handy. <laughs> like, you, uh, but yeah. don't wear the ring too long because Sauron can see you. Yeah, the, the, exactly. the Nazgul are going to, to find you, I guess. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah. So, And it's a long con, too. It, it takes years and years of planning, and she has that whole list of things to do. Yeah, as well. Oh, that's actually a, a detailed a plot question I wanted to ask you guys was that um, inserting the ex-boyfriend Claude into the party and Cohen as Anne Hathaway's date um, was how how much how planned out was that? Like, could she have possibly conceived of that particular piece there uh, while stewing away in prison? Um, to me, it felt like it would have been more plausible had they uh, had she found out that they were together while she was in the slammer and then had that sort of be the, um, the impetus for enacting revenge. I think that it's assumed that that's part of the plan. Cause I, I didn't get a good read of the whole list, but the last one said something about Cupid. Yeah. And, and like yeah. And Cupid's she, gift yeah. or Cupid, something, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that involved, uh, Anne Hathaway, like seducing him, and uh, and getting him the diamond in his house or like putting the diamond on display, taking the picture and sending it so that the insurance adjust the insurance investigator had the probable cause to get a search warrant for the cops to go into the apartment. Um, although that I mean, it's debatable about how admissible something like that would be, I guess. <laughs> but, um, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Uh, but, yeah, it's interesting. It's that seems like a part of the like do what she always expecting Anne Hathaway to flip. Whoever she figured out the Anne Hathaway was, she expected Anne Hathaway to turn and help the women out uh, at some point. If, if she really planned out everything, if Ford really planned it all in this Westworld that's happening, yeah, she, Ford has to have anticipated a number of fairly unlikely things, uh, which which bear out. But not as bad as not, it's not quite as much of a reach as Westworld is, of course. Uh, there, there's only one or two robot cowboys in this entire movie. Uh, but they're, and they're in the background. You can't really see them. They're never in focus. But, <laughs> but yes, Mark, I th- I feel like that was part of the plan. I feel like setting up the boyfriend to take the fall. Although maybe you think that he had, she had some other way. She's just like, I'm going to figure out a way to plant one of the diamonds on my ex-boyfriend. And then he's going to get he's going to take the fall for it. But he didn't know that they were going to steal it. Right. They just lined him up to get the date. Um, that was a part of the plan that I missed. Right. How did the ex-boyfriend end up at the event where he met Anne Hathaway, like sitting next to her? How did that was that set up at Vogue magazine? Uh, how did that work? I, I believe it was. I believe he was added to a pre-gala guest list. Right. And then seated next to Anne Hathaway. And that was um, just that, expected to work. It, yeah. As, as I think by the fact that we're kind of scratching our heads about this is good evidence that like this is not one of the most elegantly plotted out aspects of the movie. And that in general, right, the the heist was not quite as um, I hesitate to use the word elegant because that implies a sort of aesthetic quality to it. But like the all the pieces didn't quite come together as well as uh, as well as does in other satisfying, more satisfying heist movies. Um, although I mean, at the end of the day, be, I was I was really like... entertained by this. But no, yeah, I was just saying I was still entertained quite uh, quite a lot by this. But um, it didn't quite stick all of its landings as neatly as it might uh, as I might have hoped. Though it might be the best movie about information security ever made. 
Uh, <laughs> you gotta <laughs> reduce an, an authentic fishing attack. Oh yeah, that fishing. They should show that scene at corporate trainings to people. So because that is what happens. That was so amazing. <laughs> it totally is. <laughs> it totally that actually happens in the real world all the freaking time. That people target these individual executives with emails about their personal interests to get them to click on links so that they can plant things on their computers or take data away from them or get their access to various sorts of systems. Totally, totally happens all the time. So be careful about that. Yeah. Don't, uh, uh, yeah. don't, don't send me a link to an adorable Basset Hound uh, website <laughs> or something like that, where you can see, Oh, floppy eared Bassets. You know, you'll, you'll get the, uh, the, like the master encryption keys to overthinking it. Yeah. <laughs> Rather at overthinking they, they, it.com they, for yes. those Bassett hats. And those are also worth $150 million. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to give, you have to give uh, capitalism its share, so you probably only get, what, 100 out of it. But, um, well, I think like all good capers, ours uh, has come to an end. Thanks very much, guys, for uh, overthinking Oceans 8 with me. And thank you, listeners, everyone who uh, listened. Hey, we did a, uh, a pretty cool um, question of the week this week. The, uh, the question of the week is a feature that used to be part of the main show until we realized it was kind of overtaking the main show. Uh, so we moved it back behind the members-only uh, area in, uh, in the overthinking at digital library but we did a, a question of the week for this episode where we asked in honor of anthony bourdain uh where we shared um some good experiences having to do with food and travel uh less as a uh less as a remembrance of the man himself and more as a uh uh remembrance of the way that he lived his life and the awesome things that that he did and and sort of shared and taught us so uh if you care to become a member of of overthinking it if you care to support this podcast that you like and the site that uh, you may have been a fan of for 10 years with a uh, monthly contribution, uh, you can go to overthinkingit.com slash join. You'll get access to the digital library and uh, to some other stuff. So overthinkingit.com slash join for the the, um, question of the week about uh, our memorable experiences in food and travel in honor of Anthony Bourdain. Uh, A whole bunch of other cool exclusive audio content there, members only, including the Pete cast a uh, a solo <laughs> podcast um from our very own Pete Fenzel and uh, more awesome stuff there, the uh, 1984 book club and more. Uh, that's overthinkingit.com slash join in case you are interested. Uh, we'll be back next week with this podcast. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. 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 deserve.